Hello and welcome to the quest series. This is the mini-series within it, The Spiritual Hero, Part 3, in which we examine the authenticity of the Gospels and who was Jesus Christ. We noted in the last podcast the problematic evidence concerning Christ. Not only the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament, a total of 27 books, with the exception of Paul's epistles, are generally dated towards the end of the 1st century, of the Common Era, and some of it into the early second. This is the probable dating of the original texts, none of which have survived. The earliest actual fragments of these texts are usually hundreds of years later. That is, the books we have are copies of copies of copies. The New Testament itself was a selected compilation out of thousands of possible texts, that is, copies and was only first put together as a complete book in the 4th century. The New Testament, unlike the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, did not descend in a prophet's hand from the mountain, where it was dictated by God. It evolved over time, and was compiled over centuries, and selected by conscious decision from copies of originals we do not possess. Let us not forget that even if we had a text written at the time of Christ, or very shortly after it, we would still have the problem of its authenticity, as well as its veracity, since it might equally well have become infused with mythological fantasies. We have no final way of knowing the authenticity of any of the writings concerning Christ. I use authenticity in the dual sense of, firstly, documents being true representations of the material they represent, for example, a gospel being a true representation of the actual life of Christ, And secondly, documents being what they purport to be, being genuine, not faked, altered or tampered with. For example, that the gospel we read today is the same as the original. Well, we don't have the originals. And even if we did, how could one be sure of its veracity, its truth? Even the copies we possess have changes over time. For example, there are gospels of Mark which do not have the post-resurrection accounts of Christ's appearances, for example, to Mary Madeline and the 11 remaining apostles, nor an account of his bodily ascension into heaven. Some scholars believe, therefore, that this shorter version was probably more original than other copies which do tell of such post-resurrection appearances, which implies that later copies of Mark have been added to With all this material, we are already peering into a glass darkly, to use one of Paul's phrases of his epistles. And it does not become clearer if we look harder, never mind the thorny problem of translation. Since Christ's oral teachings were in the language of Aramaic, the Gospels were written in Greek, the language of the educated in the Near East at that time, and translated into Latin. From these two languages, Greek and Latin, they were translated into other languages. Imagine the difficulties en route, especially for intricate philosophical and metaphysical words and ideas. The dark glass gets darker still. Ultimately, the Gospels become a matter of faith, which, with the passage into the modern world, has become a scarcer commodity. The authors of the New Testament were not aware of our modern concerns with the historical truth of Jesus or their documents. 
they wrote in a totally different way. In the case of Paul, although he was probably the first writer on Christ, he makes hardly any reference in his epistles to his life, to his existence as an historical person, or to his supposed sayings. Rather, Paul is archetypally possessed by his vision that Christ is a divine saviour and that his mission is to take the message of the resurrected Christ out to all humanity who are saved through Christ's sacrifice. Faith in and love of Christ is essential. He was not writing to demonstrate the literal existence of Christ at all. It's the supernatural Christ he wishes to communicate. So Paul, in the opinion of many, including myself, was the most forceful founder of Christianity, the real rock upon which the church was built. But he did not know Christ when he was alive, and his mission is built on a vision of Christ after his death. One is led to suspect that visionary experiences, rather than literally real experiences, in the other apostles and disciples are the basis of their resurrection and post-resurrection reports also. In the case of the Gospels, many scholars look at the differences between them. These are important, but it is also curious how similar they are, sometimes word for word. There are many studies in psychology which show that a group of people watching the same event or hearing the same lecture, when asked to report what they saw and heard, will provide very different explanations. The same applies to witnesses of the same accident who give different testimony in court. It's simply not possible for almost identical accounts and words to be given for the life of Christ, or anyone for that matter, from different sources many years later. It is scarcely possible immediately after one sermon that the witnesses would agree. Accordingly, it has been argued there must have been some prior document or combination of document and oral tradition popularly referred to as the Q source, as in Q for question, which had an account of Christ's life, sayings and teachings, which the Gospels used. That document has never appeared. I suspect it was a minimalist document to which much has been added. Insofar as it may partly be oral tradition, then of course the scope for enlargement, hearsay and exaggeration, is limitless. The evidence, problematic though it may be, however, does point to Christ's existence and there is a common agreement as to at least some of his teaching. But I argue, and many others have done so also, that an extraordinary mythology has gathered around this spiritual teacher. I believe that the emerging Christian and then Catholic Church felt a great imperative to supernaturalise the life of their leader. This, incidentally, is very common even down to small cults, never mind the large religions. It would be extremely naive to neglect the obvious advantages of Christ's followers so doing, that is, putting supernatural interpretation upon what they saw and heard. But most of this mythological exaggeration would have been deeply unconscious because we are dealing with archetypal material. The argument that these so-called myths must be literally true to account for the magnitude of their impact, for example that of Christ upon the world, is interesting but problematic. There have been other individual spiritual teachers, some from obscure backgrounds, 
who have had great impact also. Muhammad, the Buddha, Mani, Lao Tzu, and many more. Great spiritual impact when a person, a group, a society, a civilization does not guarantee the literal truth of what is communicated, but rather that the symbols used resonate deeply in the psyche of that particular group. They are archetypally and symbolically meaningful, but not literally true. Thus, different spiritual revelations and the religions they generate, though different in form, often have common motifs. These are archetypes which affect the unconscious very deeply and often create intense emotional response of a spiritual nature. The argument that one should believe in Christ and the Gospels because the world is so full of evil and that without the Christian religion one is left in moral anarchy is emotionally understandable, but also problematic. I believe that Christ and early Christianity were a reaction against the extreme brutality, materialism, corruption and decadency of the Roman Empire. No doubt they also saw it as evil. It needed a complete opposite in the person of Christ and the principles of early Christianity to counter it. The same argument applies to the collapse of the Roman Empire when the terrors of anarchy and invasion plunged the entire region into the abyss. One can well understand the need for a mythology every bit as powerful as the forces of darkness it faced. Christ, no doubt, represented the light. And the more divine status he had, the better. And there is a very strong and special force around the Christ image, which provides light and stability when faced with tremendous inner and outer darkness and evil. Christ is famous for powers of exorcism, told by many moving stories in the Bible. This power of exorcising devils was passed on to the apostles and certainly through Peter, of whom it is told in the Acts of the Apostles, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities, round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. A similar argument can be applied today. As the Western world experiences increased political conflict, military threat, moral anarchy, decadence, economic stagnation or collapse of its economic system, some similarities here to the decline of the Roman Empire, then we can expect a need to arise for Christ once again. He does, after all, have a habit of rising from the dead. He did promise a second coming. However, I expect that other parts of the world experiencing similar troubles will have reappearances of their own spiritual heroes, which in any culture are particular variations of an underlying archetype. It is also possible that a new spiritual vision may emerge in the 21st century as a response to the emerging crises that I am outlining. But I expect that it too will have its key elements emerge from an archetypal core. The thread of my argument is now becoming clearer. It's the archetypal core where the inner authenticity, the underlying truth of these myths lie, not in their outward and literal forms, which change from culture to culture from one historical period to another. 
Moreover, reason and intellect can only superficially approach this mythological core. The left brain can only break down, analyse, contrast and compare, etc. It is only the deeper psyche that can do the work of engaging with the archetypal core from which the mythological material flows. Essentially, spiritual heroes and their followers act out myths, all the more powerful because they are unconscious. These myths and the stories that surround them are not true in the literal sense, but they do possess tremendous force, since they correspond to deep inner forces, especially those of dark and light, which have always existed in the human psyche. In this sense, the stories have symbolic and mythological truth, which have proved to be a powerful shaper of history. As I was taking a tea break while preparing this podcast, I found myself laughing with a memory. For just as we can break our brains questioning who Christ was and the authenticity of it all, Christ himself posed the same teaser question to his apostles and disciples. The question and different answers to it are fascinating. Matthew, Mark and Luke have practically the same account, almost the same words describing this. Hmm. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. There is a beauty and depth in these words, as so much of the Bible, even translated into a far-off language. They are almost made to be sung, They have the emotionality of music or poetry, while an archetypal response may occur deep in the psyche because the spirit is activated. They knew how to use words of the spirit. Much of the Bible is like this, as it exercises a most powerful force and effect upon the reader. I almost said exorcises, as in exorcising of devils. As you know, It so happens that there were Gnostic Gospels also. Of course, they are not in the New Testament and were branded as heresy by the Church. Among the discoveries in the Egyptian sands in 1945, there is one called the Gospel of Thomas. Once again, scholars, especially Christian ones, are quick to date it to the 2nd century, much later than the time of Christ. Yet there was an apostle called Thomas, and here is someone reporting not the life of Christ, but the compilation of his sayings, teachings, parables and riddles, who calls himself Thomas the Apostle. Gnostic scholars such as Lance Owens argue that it is based upon an original collection by Thomas the Apostle. Verse 13 onwards of Thomas's Gospel is as follows. Jesus said to his disciples, Compare me to something and tell me what I am like. Simon Peter said to him, You are like a just messenger. Matthew said to him, 
you are like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, Teacher, my mouth is utterly unable to say what you are like. Jesus said, I am not your teacher. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have tended. And he took him and withdrew and spoke three sayings to him. When Thomas came back to his friends, they asked him, What did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, If I tell you one of the sayings he spoke to me, you will pick up rocks and stone me. And fire will come from those rocks and devour you. Let us compare the canonical gospel version and the Gnostic version. The canonical gospel version is very much in a form approved by the evolving church. That's the one by Matthew, read first. The first answers that are given in Matthew's version suggest that Jesus must be a reappearance of prophets from the Judaic tradition. But Simon Peter gives the iconic answer and goes to the top of the class. Christ is the Messiah and divine. He is far above the prophets, therefore. He is the Son of God, part of the divinity. Moreover, Matthew's version, not Luke's or Mark's actually, continues with the ideal lines for the church. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This text suspiciously like an insertion for the political ends of the Catholic Church, is the authority of Peter being the first Pope. And from then on, the line of authority and infallibility and increasing power is passed on. It legitimises church power, in other words. Remember, there were other contenders for religious authority. This was a fiercely contested field. The Gnostic text, although almost certainly referring to the same event, remembers it totally differently and gives an enigmatic, fascinating response. The first response from Simon Peter compares Christ to the just messenger. This is a Gnostic idea of the heavenly messenger who descends from another world and may take the earthly figure of a real person, for example John the Baptist who works with the dispersed light in this world to gather it together and return it to the Pleroma, the true light source. The second response from Matthew appears to be platonic, for the wise philosopher perceives the original forms of things. But it is Thomas's answer that captures Christ's attention. Teacher, my mouth is utterly unable to say what you are like. I'm not sure if he goes to the top or the bottom of the class, but it is he who is picked out. It is impossible to give the true or correct answer to this question, but to my way of thinking, the divine source of all things is ineffable, utterly beyond words. And I think this is implied in Thomas's response. Now the surprises begin. Christ informs him that he is not his teacher. So he is neither the messenger, 
nor the wise philosopher, and not the teacher. I am sure that no matter what was suggested, even if it was that he was the Messiah, Christ would have denied that also, in this Gnostic version. Here, he is not playing at being God. He uses a metaphor to describe this. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have tended. Christ recognises that Thomas is intoxicated, that is, in a state of spiritual ecstasy. But instead of taking the higher divine position, I am God, he seems to be communicating that he too is drinking from the same spiritual source. This source, or spring, is one that Christ is tending, or bringing forth. Here we are in very different territory to the canonical Gospels that seek to emphasise the divinity of Christ and the passage of authority to themselves. Christ's actions next are surprising, for he whispers three things to Thomas in secret. I suspect because Thomas's mind has been cleared of preconceptions. However, what he communicates is so extraordinary that when asked to reveal it to the others, he says he cannot, because if he did, they would stone him, which I assume is because it is blasphemous, or they would think he is possessed by devils. And then, that fire will come from the rocks and devour them. Well, they must have been astonished. There is a tradition in Gnosticism that Christ was really a teacher of secret wisdom, esoteric knowledge and the mysteries. There is also a similar one in the East, especially in India, which Thomas is said to have gone to, whereby illumination only happens when you pass beyond words. Moreover, there is a tradition in the East and also Japan, whereby the teacher breaks the ego of the student by forceful methods, instead of reasoning and normal exchange. Here, I suggest, we see this tradition. It was so radical that it was one the church wished to and did bury. Actually in the sands of the Egyptian desert, as well as in numerous other locations. If we want to get just a flavour of what was whispered, perhaps the rest of the Gospel of Thomas will give us hints. For example, Jesus said, Whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become that person, and the hidden things will be revealed to him. And his disciples said to him, When will the kingdom come? It will not come by watching for it. It will not be said, Look here or look there. Rather, the Father's kingdom is spread out upon the earth, and people see it not and split a log and I am there lift a stone you will find me I hope you can join me for the next podcast where we explore the evolving mythology of the church around the figure of Christ <laughs>